Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 35, Cassandra Burke Robertson, Invisible Error. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Andra Robertson. Andra is the Drinko Baker Hostetler Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Professional Ethics at Case Western. She teaches civil procedure, professional responsibility, and secured transactions, and her research focuses on procedure and legal ethics. Our podcast today features Andra's new article, Invisible Error, which is forthcoming in the Connecticut Law Review. In it, Andra examines the standards that courts use to review jury verdicts, specifically when deciding whether to order a new trial. When we think about motions for new trial, most of us probably think about the rational jury standard, but as the article suggests, the situation on the ground is far more diverse and confused. Andra surveys and categorizes the various standards and then tries to make sense of them. She interprets the power to order a new trial as a safeguard against improper jury decision-making, otherwise hidden from view, hence the title, Invisible Error. Andra, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Your article begins with a doctrinal survey, which shows a, a lot of confusion and variation over the correct standard that you should apply when granting new trial. Could you tell us a little bit about what those standards are and how they differ from each other? Sure. The standards, as you say, are, are so different from state to state and different in federal court. But I became interested in the project about 12 years ago, before I went into academia, when I was practicing in Texas. And in Texas, appellate review of jury verdicts always includes two components. The legal sufficiency analysis, which I think is pretty consistent nationwide, which is could a reasonable juror have found in the way that the jury found? And if not, right, then judgment as a matter of law is appropriate. So that was pretty standard. But then Texas also had any time somebody would appeal an evidentiary sufficiency point, they would also appeal what in Texas is called factual sufficiency, which is even if a reasonable juror could have found in this way, is it nevertheless against the great weight and preponderance of the evidence? And if the judge finds that to be the case, instead of granting judgment as a matter of law, the remedy is then to grant a new trial. So in, in Texas, that's very standard, and you never really see an appeal of evidentiary sufficiency without also appealing the factual sufficiency of the evidence. When I started to look at federal court practice, and I, I teach civil procedure, so I come to it from that angle, I was curious about how that works in federal court and was really surprised to find out that these weight of the evidence appeals are incredibly rare in federal court. I did a survey about 10 years ago and then looked at it again more recently, and it really hasn't changed. But in federal court, 
if you have a thousand cases where the, somebody has appealed an evidentiary sufficiency point, in only a hundred of them, does the court actually look at weight of the evidence as well? So you're not seeing the two go together the way that you did in Texas. So that got me interested in the project and I started to look at what are the standards in other states? What do other states do? How do the various circuits look at this? And that's where I found just so much variation that it's hard to even say that there's you know, a consistent doctrine. What we do know is both in federal court and in, in every state that I've looked at, there certainly is an ability to ask for a new trial on the weight of the evidence that has existed for centuries. It was there at common law in England. It became part of the law of the states with the founding of the country, and it's never gone away. But the standard for how does the court examine that what do they look at? Can the trial court, for example, consider credibility in determining the weight of the evidence? So much variation there that there's hard to say there's a single doctrine. Let me try to clarify a little bit. So are you saying that this idea of examining the weight of the evidence, not the regular sufficiency standard, but this idea right. that you can even go against the sufficiency standard, is that baked into every state or every jurisdiction's doctrine, it's just that it's yes. uncommonly used? Yes to the first. It's definitely baked into every state's doctrine. There's incredible variation in, among the states as to how commonly it's used. Obviously, it's always an adjunct to legal sufficiency in Texas. In Ohio, very similar. You will always, almost always, see somebody appealing a weight of the evidence point if they're also appealing sufficiency. Other states, it varies. In some, it's very common. It's more rare as it is in federal court. What's the typical split? So if we had to declare a majority practice versus a minority practice, what would that look like? Right. I would say the majority of states have a pretty robust practice, certainly more robust than we see in federal court. Okay, so let me turn to a slightly different aspect, but related aspect to this discovery you had about weight of the evidence review. Your survey also shows a bunch of variation on how courts treat evidence in applying the new trial standard. What kinds of variation did you find there? All sorts, right? I think one of the biggest ones is, can the trial judge consider witness credibility in determining whether the jury's verdict is against the great weight and preponderance of the evidence? The majority view seems to be, yes, you know, that is something the trial judge can consider. And there's, there's even variation among the states as to what they call this process. Some states refer to it as the 13th juror rule, that the judge is acting as a 13th juror. Maybe not surprisingly, in the states that, that call it that, they give the trial judge pretty much the same scope of review as the jury would have so the judge can consider credibility. In other states, the judge is not allowed to. So even Texas, where you see this kind of review happening so commonly and the appellate courts frequently reverse on the weight of the evidence, the trial judge, though, cannot consider credibility. In Ohio, though, where it's also a very robust practice, the trial judge can. You know, a fair amount of variation as to what can be considered. 
And then the other really huge area of variation, and again, it's hard to know these cases are rare enough and inconsistent enough that it's kind of hard to tell exactly what the courts are doing. But there seems to also be quite a bit of variation in just how convinced the judge has to be that the jury got it wrong. The probably most frequent formulation the courts use is this, it's against the great weight and preponderance. So not just the trial judge disagrees with the jury, but the trial judge very strongly disagrees with the jury, thinks that the evidence preponderated very strongly against the verdict. The term manifest injustice is often used, the judge has to be convinced, not just that the jury got it wrong, but the jury got it so wrong that it causes a manifest injustice in the verdict. But again, it's not entirely consistent. And then some states and even some federal courts have at least stated a much lower standard saying that the evidence doesn't necessarily have to preponderate so strongly against the verdict. The judge simply needs to be convinced that the jury got it wrong and then has discretion, that it's a discretionary decision to decide whether or not to grant a new trial on the weight of the evidence. Let me ask a practical question then. There's clear differences in the actual doctrine, or at least formally, you're going to have either confusion or variation. Right. How much of a difference does this make in practice? So you've read all the cases. Right. You can see how they come out. Is there a big difference based on what standard the judge applies? There can be, yes. So credibility matters a whole lot. If the trial judge can consider credibility, that is definitely going to change what the judge considers. The Supreme Court's recent decision in the Peña-Rodriguez case this, this spring is one that interests me a lot. Because I think under at least some of the standards that are applied in some of the states, the verdict in Peña-Rodriguez could have been, perhaps should have been, reversed on the weight of the evidence so that we didn't get into this question of the court ultimately decided it based on the fact that later disclosed testimony about what happened in the jury room showed that at least one of the jurors was extremely racially biased and that infected the verdict. So I'm, I'm interested in that because I suspect that one of the reasons why the jurors started looking to racial stereotypes was just, in fact, that the evidence was so weak. They didn't have anything else to go on, so they start relying on the racist stereotypes. So at least under some of the states where the trial judge would have had the power to say this, this verdict goes against the weight of the evidence, orders a new trial, you never even get to worry about what happened in the jury room. But in a state like Texas, even one that does this review very regularly, if the trial judge cannot consider credibility, then I think that the verdict in Peña Rodriguez would have stood, and then the, the court would have had to reach the question it did, which was, can we consider this later disclosed evidence? of racial bias. That actually prompts this question in my mind. So when the judge does this review, is the judge bound by the rules of evidence? That is a really good question. I have not seen any case talk about that, and I have read a whole lot of cases. You can imagine that if you view yourself as the 13th juror, where basically you're not doing any deference at all, well, but you're the juror, so you have to adhere to the rules of evidence. But if you're not, and you consider it something along the lines of a 104A, and it's not really a 104A, but you're, you're behaving something like that, you might ignore the rules of evidence. Yeah, and I'm, I'm coming to this as a procedure scholar rather than an evidence scholar, so maybe that's informing my instinct here. 
but my instinct is to think that the judge shouldn't be bound by the rules of evidence in this situation. That even though we might call the judge a 13th juror in this way, the function that the judge is performing is really a judicial function. And the judicial function is to say, I think something went wrong in the jury process here. And that's one of the reasons I call this article invisible error, right? Because I think in the vast majority of these cases, the judge isn't going to know what went wrong, but looks at the jury's verdict and thinks this seems so wrong. This seems so unjust that I suspect that something went wrong and I might not know what, but I'm going to order a new trial hoping that whatever happened in the jury process won't be recreated in a second trial. Let me explore that. The piece is called Invisible Error. So you've painted this picture that there's a lot of variation. What's the right rule? If you could pick one and clean all of this mess up, what would the rule look like? I am a bit of an evangelist for increasing the judge's power to order a new trial. It's very expensive. Obviously, trials are tremendously expensive in the first instance, and ordering a second one might, you know, as I, as I say in the piece, seem just downright decadent. But I think it's important. It's worth the cost. It happens more often than we realize that something goes wrong in the jury room, and still not a lot. We know in the vast majority of cases, juries do their work very well. They come up with a good result. There's 80% agreement normally between the judge and the jury. And then in the 20% where there's disagreement, it's usually not this kind of strong disagreement where the judge might be convinced that the result is manifestly unjust. But I think there's a not insignificant number of cases where there is this disagreement. The judge does believe that the verdict results from manifest injustice. And I think in the those cases, there's a due process right for a new trial. It didn't used to be uncommon. Back in the days when trial was the most common way of resolving disputes centuries ago, the judge's power to order a new trial was regularly invoked. It was not rare at all. It's become very rare in the last hundred years with the decline of the jury trial at all. So I think you've seen this process where as the jury trial becomes so unusual, and, and such an unusual way of resolving disputes. I think less than 1% of cases ever get to a trial at all. Courts and people become very reluctant to overturn a single jury verdict because jury verdicts are so rare at all. But I think if you look back historically, there is enough need to overturn some of the jury verdicts where things go wrong that it should be more common than it is even in this system. So what I would like to see is what is a fairly common, at least stated standard among the states, which is that the judge has discretion to order a new trial if the judge is convinced that there's manifest injustice. I think that's a pretty good standard. It doesn't get to exactly what is the quantum of evidence, how wrong does the verdict have to be. I would leave it as a discretionary decision. If the judge feels that a manifest injustice has been done, the judge may have no idea why the jury ruled as it did. But in that situation, the judge should be empowered to grant a new trial. I think that the judge should be allowed to consider witness credibility. I think it goes to the whole. I think it goes to the sense of has an injustice been done? So I think the judge should have full power to consider witness testimony, consider credibility, look at the evidence as a whole, and make a determination if the judge believes there has been a manifest injustice. And this is different from the no rational jury standard because there is less deference to the jury here? 
difference in a couple of ways. The big one, right, is that direct evidence will always survive a sufficiency challenge. And so we see that in Pena Rodriguez, where we had the two teenage girls who were eyewitnesses, they were the victims, and they pointed to this man and they said, yes, he's the one who did it. That kind of direct evidence is always going to pass a sufficiency challenge. It might not pass a weight challenge, at least as long as the judge can consider credibility. So the judge can consider, and the judge knows much better than the jury, some of the risks of eyewitness testimony, the risks that depending on, on how the identification is made, it can be very suggestive, as it in fact was in Peña Rodriguez. And so the judge can say, yes, there's not enough here to direct a verdict of acquittal because we have direct evidence. We have eyewitness testimony saying we saw him and he is the person. But it might not pass the weight analysis. The other issue, and this is another one where you see some variation among courts, although I think this is less intentional, is that in the analysis of the directed verdict or decision to grant judgment as a matter of law, the trial court has to indulge all inferences in favor of the verdict. And so that means you know, credibility inferences, certainly, but has to look at the evidence in the most favorable light to see if it supports the verdict. A few courts have at least stated that standard for the review of evidentiary weight as well. And it doesn't make as much sense there. I don't think it makes any sense there. If you're going to indulge all inferences to favor the verdict, then there's nothing left to examine in terms of evidentiary weight. So I think those courts are just getting the standards confused. And certainly the majority view is, no, if you're reviewing evidentiary weight, you review the evidence neutrally as a whole. You don't indulge any inferences in favor of the verdict. You simply look at the evidence as a whole in a neutral light and evaluate whether the great weight of the evidence contradicts the verdict or not. Let me add one additional advantage, I think, to your approach. In your article, you talk about how the review for weight involves something of a confidence analysis, that right. judges should look at how confident we are in the decision. And that idea, of course, reminds me a lot of your colleague Dale Nance's book yeah. on yeah. <laughs> the weight of evidence. Are you both talking about the same thing, or is there a distinction here in your view as well? I think we're talking about roughly the same thing. Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about it and gone back and forth. His book, of course, is wonderful. But yeah, I think it is essentially the same thing. All right, time for the final question that I usually ask on this podcast. How do you think that work in this area should proceed going forward? So are there additional issues that you want to explore? Or is this largely now an issue of implementation? You want to get courts to buy your view of this? If I could have anything happen, it wouldn't even be influencing courts at the outset. It would be influencing lawyers. Because what's happening, I think, in the, in the states that don't use it as much, and certainly in federal courts, is the lawyers aren't bringing these issues up. And I don't understand why not. To me, it seems if somebody is appealing a jury verdict. If somebody loses a jury verdict and appeals on evidentiary sufficiency, it makes no sense to me that they would not also bring up 
a weight point to say, well, even if the court concludes that there's enough here that a reasonable juror could have concluded in this way, at least rule that great weight of the evidence contradicts the jury's verdict. If attorneys would start litigating these points more, then the courts would have to start considering them. And I think then we would get a little bit more convergence on a standard. And then we could do more academic work too in, in figuring out exactly where the standard should be. But I don't, I don't think we can do much more of that until litigators actually start raising these points. Well, Andra, thanks for taking the time to talk about your new article on the new trial standard. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. One interesting phenomenon that Andra's article touches on is when there seems to be settled legal doctrine, but it actually masks ambiguity and variation underneath. I'll bet that before this podcast, most of us thought that we knew what the standard for granting new trial was. After all, we all learned it in law school. It's whether no rational juror could find the facts as the jury did. But what does it mean when we say no rational juror? Does it mean a pure sufficiency check? As in whether there was enough evidence at all? Or is there a weight component? pushing on this idea of no rational juror. And if there is a weight component, how much deference should the judge give to the jury's decision? There's a big difference between thinking that the judge is a 13th juror, which is kind of like de novo review, versus asking about manifest injustice, which feels almost like a constitutional due process challenge. And just how many times is a judge allowed to do this? One thing Andra and I didn't get around to discussing is whether the judge only gets to do this once, as is the case in some jurisdictions, or whether the judge can go back to this well again and again. Finally, I'm intrigued by the question whether the judge should be bound by the rules of evidence in conducting this weight of evidence review. If the judge is supposed to be a check on the jury, in fact, If the judge is supposed to be any kind of safety valve, it would seem that the judge should be given more latitude. So perhaps Andra is right. The rules of evidence shouldn't apply. But I think that moves the judicial role to a whole new level. The power to grant a new trial will then not be just about policing jury irrationality or invisible error but in fact a commitment to policing the entire trial process, including the rules of evidence themselves. Like any good piece of legal scholarship, Andra's article ultimately raises more questions than it answers. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle-Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.